Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 7. As I mentioned in the last episode, most of the material in chapters 6 and 7 is part of a self-contained unit. R.K. Harrison explains the division this way. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 7, the ritual prescriptions are described from the standpoint of the person making the offering. Whereas in chapter 6, verse 8 through 7, 36, the narrative considers the various sacrifices as the priests have to deal with them, close quote. So for most of this chapter, apart from the final two verses, we are still exploring this behind-the-scenes look at the main sacrificial offerings. We're talking about how the priests need to handle the sacrifice itself. What parts of the animal should be burned? Who can eat what parts that remain? Where should those various portions be eaten? Who gets to keep the skin of the sacrificial animal? Those are the sorts of issues being discussed in this section. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. These laws complement those provided at the end of chapter 6 and verses 24 to 30 with respect to the sin offering. These sacrifices are very similar. And therefore, the same rules apply to both, a fact made explicit down in verse 7. So we're talking about the sacrifice itself, particularly from the perspective of the officiating priest. First thing we're being told here is that this sacrifice is to be categorized as most holy. That means that no portion of it is to be returned to the worshiper. Portions of this type of sacrifice can only be eaten by the priests And those portions must be eaten inside the tabernacle complex. Verse 2. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, And the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Now here we're being told in what ways the rule or the liturgy for this sacrifice parallels and departs from those associated with the other sacrifices. It is similar in some respects to the burnt offering. The animal is slaughtered in the same place, And the blood is similarly dashed by the sons of Aaron against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You can revisit those instructions as provided in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. The body of the animal is divided up in the same manner detailed in chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, in the set of rules relating to the peace offering. Those portions are then burned on the altar as a food offering to the Lord, It is a guilt offering. Verse 6. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it 
shall have it. So here we are reminded that as in the case of the sin offering, this is a most holy offering, meaning that only the priests can eat it, and that only in the sacred precinct. Which, of course, begs the question, how do the priests support their families? If they have to eat it in the precinct, how do they buy food for their wives and children? We begin to get into that in verse 8. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. Okay, this was not mentioned in chapter 1 when the burnt offering was first described. But now we learn that before the burnt offering is burnt on the altar, it was skinned. And the skin became the property of the officiating priest. He could use it or he could sell it and make money to support his family. Now, again, the exception to this, of course, was that he could not profit from any sacrifice relating to his own sin. But in general, the skins of these animals made up an important portion of his income as a priest. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary highlights the embedded principle here and provides the corresponding New Testament application. It says, These instructions enunciate clearly the principle that those who minister at the altar shall share in the sacrificial offerings. In brackets there, he cites 1 Corinthians 9.13 and 10.18. These constitute their livelihood and enable them to devote their time and energy to the Lord's service rather than to lesser pursuits. It is the responsibility of the Lord's people to give proper economic support to those who are full-time ministers of the gospel, citing in brackets here, 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, lest they be distracted by purely material considerations from their prime task of proclaiming the crucified and risen Lord, closed quote. While it is interesting to note that the New Testament rarely, not never, but rarely, refers to the ministry of the apostles and elders using priestly terminology, it is clear that the principles embedded in these stories that we're looking at were considered to have enduring application. The Apostle Paul makes explicit reference to this section of Leviticus in 1 Corinthians 9, 13-14, when he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Closed quote. So Old Testament and New, we can see a desire embedded in the text to provide some kind of reasonable level of support to those engaged in facilitating the worship and ministry of the covenant community. Verse 9. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. The and there at the start of verse 9 and again at the start of verse 10 might better be translated as further, as in fact it is in the JPS Torah commentary. Further. To the principle of priestly support, we are here told that portions of the grain offerings, however they be prepared, are to be shared equally among the officiating priests. In verse 11, we begin to hear about the rule for the disposition of the peace offering, which is a less holy offering, if we may use that terminology. Verse 11. 
And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. So, as mentioned above, this offering is not designated as most holy. An offering that is most holy can only be eaten by the priests. No portion of it is to be returned to the worshiper. But here, in the case of the peace offering, a portion is returned to the worshiper, and that made the offering of a peace offering something of a special occasion. As Gordon Wedham says here, for many Israelites, the peace offering was the main, some would say the only, opportunity they had to eat meat, closed quote. There are a variety of reasons why a person might offer a peace offering, and the instructions are slightly different in each of those cases. In the first instance, if the worshiper is offering his sacrifice as a thanksgiving, usually in response to some particular benevolence of the Lord, such as a prayer being answered or a womb being opened, in such cases, alongside of the animal offering, there would be an accompanying grain offering in the form of baked loaves or cakes of bread. The leavened loaves will be given directly to the officiating priest, and the unleavened loaves will be offered on the altar. As we learned in chapter 2, verse 11, no leaven is to be burned on the altar. Even though no portion of the leavened loaves was given on the altar, it was still considered an offering to the Lord. Gifts given to the Lord can be either burned on the altar or given to the priests. Either way, it is unto the Lord and received as such. In verse 15, we learn that the meat portion of this particular offering must be eaten on the same day that it was offered. This is slightly different than the regulations laid down for the most holy offerings as per Leviticus 6.16. Various reasons have been suggested for this particular requirement. Some suggest that it was to encourage sharing. Rather than storing up the leftover meat so that you could eat a little bit tomorrow and maybe the next day, far better to invite your friends Better still to invite the poor to come and enjoy the feast with you. Make it a special day and include as many people as possible. So that may be the reason, but we don't know for sure because we are not told. One thing we do know is that the Thanksgiving offering occupied a special position in rabbinic tradition because it symbolized pure gratitude. It was not motivated by sin or guilt, nor was it associated with any kind of vow. You weren't trying to get anything from God. You were just thankful. Baruch Levine says here, 
According to rabbinic teaching, it would continue to be offered in the Messianic era when the rest of the sacrificial system was no longer operative, closed quote. Baruch Levine is a Jewish scholar. And what he's saying is that the Jewish teaching, the Jewish rabbis expect gratitude to become the major note and the default tone in the Messianic era. And of course, we see that in the New Testament, don't we? And that's appropriate. It ought to be the main theme and the default tone in our times of gathered worship because everything now has been done for us with respect to our atonement. Therefore, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 16, we encounter some further reasons for which a person might offer a peace offering unto the Lord. It could also be for the purposes of fulfilling a vow, as mentioned earlier, or it could be a free will offering. These would generally take the form of voluntary contributions to the sanctuary. In these cases, the portion returned to the worshiper could be eaten on the day of the offering or the next day, but not on the day after that. If it was eaten on that day, then the offering would be invalidated. The reason for this stipulation is not explained, but some Christian interpreters see in it an anticipation of Christ. So Andrew Bonner, for example, says here, the type refers to the incorruption of the surety after he had been offered as a sacrifice. When the third day came around, God completed his testimony to the acceptance of his son's work by forthwith raising him from the dead, ere corruption could begin, closed quote. In verse 19, we get into some regulations and protocols that could affect the outcome of the various peace offerings. But before we get into that, I want to zoom out quickly and notice something very important. Remember, Leviticus is intending to teach us the rudiments of biblical faith, not the mature expression, but the rudiments, the basic foundational principles of biblical faith. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says something very interesting here about the peace offerings. It says that these various sacrifices lent substance to the conviction in Israel that God valued a tangible response to his blessings more than a mere verbal profession of gratitude, which might or might not be sincere. Close quote. Did you hear that? These sacrifices instilled in the Jewish mind the idea that gestures communicate. Words are cheap. Saying you believe is one thing. Showing it is quite another. And you can hear that same mindset very clearly in James 2 when the apostle talks about how Abraham showed his faith in the offering of Isaac. I think that we as modern day evangelicals put way too much stock in sentiment and speech. And we need to think a little bit more about how to show our faith in the things we do and the way we live. That is part of what we are supposed to be learning in this text. Verse 19. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. 
All right, we're running out of time here. So I need to start being a little more economical. But the, the problem with Leviticus is that it is so foreign to the modern reader that almost everything in it needs to be explained. The main idea here is that the holy and the profane cannot be mixed. If holy meat comes into contact with something unclean or profane, it can no longer be used for religious purpose. You have to burn it. Likewise, if a person has become unclean, they cannot join in with this feast. Again, this is teaching us one of the bedrock, one of the rudimentary principles of biblical faith. The holy and the profane cannot come together. God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil. That is basic. That is, that is foundational. If that wasn't true, then the sacrificial system wouldn't have been necessary. If that wasn't true, then the cross of Jesus Christ would not have been necessary. But it is true. And so it was necessary. And it was effective. Thanks be to God. Verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but of no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood whatever, whether of fowl or of animal in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood that person shall be cut off from his people. This is basically an expansion of the instructions that were given in chapter 3 concerning fat and blood. The Israelites were not to eat the fat of any animal that could be sacrificed, so oxen, sheep, goat, bird. The fat of those animals was to be burned. However, if the animal died in such a way as to disqualify it for sacrificial purposes, then the fat could be used for other purposes, though not eaten. It could be used for lighting or for polish or uh, for medical or veterinary purposes. Shepherds used animal fat for a variety of reasons. That was fine, as long as you didn't eat it. And you weren't supposed to eat the blood either. As we talked about in chapter 3, the blood was associated with life and atonement and was not to be treated in a profane manner. The Jews were very careful to drain the blood out of any meat that was to be consumed by the individual a practice that has practical and hygienic benefits to it as well. Verse 28, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel 
from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual dew throughout their generations. These verses constitute basically an appendix to the rules governing the peace offering itself. It details which portions of the animal are to be given to the priests. We talked earlier about which of the accompanying grain offerings was to be given to the priest. That material is not repeated here. Rather, the focus is on the meat portion. The priest would take the breast portion and wave it or present it before the altar so as to designate it as an offering to God. But then rather than burn it, the priest would take possession of it. This was his portion and part of his personal maintenance. In verse 32, we see that he also gets the right thigh. That is his perpetual due, his salary, we would say. Remember, the priests were not assigned any land to farm. They were told to give themselves fully to the work of the Lord. So this isn't extortion. This is pay for services. While greed and deceit on behalf of the priesthood are regularly condemned, so too in the Bible is the failure of the people to pay the priests what they are due. That is a major theme, for example, in the book of Nehemiah. If you don't pay the priests, then the house and the worship collapse into ruin. So again, right here in the rudiments of the faith, we're being told that worship has a cost, and that cost has to be paid if the worship is to continue. In the human sphere, we pay for what we value. And so this aspect of paying the priesthood became a bit of a gauge for the religious enthusiasm of the people as a whole. Verse 37, this is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. These verses are basically a summary of the first seven chapters as a whole. These are the rules concerning the offerings that lay at the very heart of the Old Testament system of worship and response to the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.